Also, what's interesting about this class that came to light last Sunday, we had a um, St. Michael 101 class and welcomed quite a few new people into the community, gave them information about what's going on here, and um, invited them to join us. And three different people or couples noted that they are listening to this online. And so I went and investigated a little bit, and we've got a few hundred people every week who are listening to this study online, which is remarkable. And so I'm so grateful to you all for being here present, um, but I want to sort of say hi to those of you who are at home um, <laughs> listening online. I think it's so great. And so I, I will try to be as attentive as possible to use words and not rely on visuals so that even if you're listening at home, you have the chance to really understand what it is that we're doing. So we have chapter 12 today, chapter 12 of Luke. Um, a quick note, if this is your first time with us in person, we've got bookmark schedules for the Bible study that are available at both doors. Do pick one up so you know when and when we are not meeting. Today, chapter 12 continues Jesus's work and ministry in a big way as he moves toward Jerusalem. So before we jump in to the details, let's talk about the structure. So for chapter 12, we have three main parts that we're going to discuss today. The first part comes with warnings. It's a continuation of Jesus's discussions on Pharisees from the end of chapter 11. So part one is warnings. Part two, we get a very helpful, maybe not as well-known parable, but decently, of the rich fool. And then part three, sort of a combo of two ideas, both watchfulness and interpreting the times. So watchfulness and interpretation. Before we jump into warnings, a, I wanted to continue the thread of discussion that we've had about prayer. Um, I actually went and listened back to portions of last week's, and it's so sloppy. I'm sorry. Um, I, I was l far less articulate than I like to be, and so I've been rolling around in my mind other ways to kind of get at or unpack this idea of prayer, and so I have something, another idea to offer you um, as an idea of, of what prayer can be. So it starts with the notion that God has a plan, right? Many of us have at least heard, even if we didn't grow up with this idea, we've heard other people use the idea that God has a plan, right? And for many of us, that might sound nice until something bad happens. Then it really sinks in, right? There is something both comforting about God's plan and also... It almost puts a period on the end of a bad situation, right? If we think that God has a plan, then it almost helps us accept the bad stuff, right? Instead of plan, I want to, for us to consider the idea of purpose, right? Plan, 
I think is a little too slippery an idea. But I do think that God has purpose for what happens in the world. And so here's the difference. Plan implies a predetermined course, right? As if before something happened, God knew or planned that it would happen, right? Plan is not just from this moment forward. Plan implies that there has been a run-up to the moment and that it was always intended to be so. I have a real problem with that, right? When bad things happen, now I'm not talking about bad things like you get a flat tire, right? I mean, again, whatever. But bad things like your child dies. Or how about bad things like the Holocaust, right? I mean, we can get as big and dramatic as you want with bad things. I have a real problem with all of the love and grace and hopefulness that we see in Scripture gelling with God predetermined for these people to die horribly, or too young, or in pain, or in tragic circumstances. That's a problem, right? It just does not fit. However, if you tweak that idea of plan just a little bit and make it purpose, then that seems to me to fit better with what we see in Scripture. And by fit, I mean God does not cause the bad, but God can do good with the bad. So there is purpose in what happens when bad things happen, right? Does, was not predetermined, and it was not caused by God. However, God is with us when it happens and can purposely do good from the bad. Okay, if that idea, if we hold that there, then it helps perhaps explain what I try to work out as my understanding of prayer, right? Prayer is not a wish list that God receives like Santa Claus and decide, decides what to grant and what not to grant, right? That's too simple. Instead, prayer is a faithful willingness to be a partner in God's purpose in the world. And it's important for us to hold the definition of purpose from what I just discussed, right? So what I don't want you to hear, which I was inarticulate last week, is not that prayers are not answered, but that prayers are first and foremost our relationship, our partnership with God. It is our willingness to go into the bad stuff with God and to be part of the redemption and the sacred purpose that can be, that can turn that bad into good. Okay. I don't want to dwell on that too long, but that's, that's sort of where I, does that help at all? I really felt bad last week because I, I could not quite 
the f- I looked out at most of you, and the faces you were giving me were sort of like, you know, I do like you, <laughs> but I'm not sure what you're saying, right? I mean, it was sort of like this, this kind of like, I, I feel like what you're saying is probably something that's okay, but I do not understand, right? I mean, that's sort of the looks I was getting from a lot of you, which I am grateful for. Thank you for <laughs> hanging with me. Um, any, any sort of reaction or question from that? Bingo. So the idea of healing is not just physical or temporal or earthly, right? Healing is much bigger than that. Now, it can be. And so, so someone asked me after class last week, so if I'm sick, should I not pray to get better? Totally pray to get better. I mean, and I want you to know as personally, I pray and ask for stuff all the time all the time, right? And I never pray harder than when I'm on an airplane. Um, I, I hate, hate flying. Hate it. And if I'm not, if I'm, especially if I'm not with anyone I know, I will have a glass of wine at 10 a.m. when I get on a plane because I cannot stand it. it it's, you know, and I, I get into that bargaining thing, like, come on, you know, just, just get me there and I'm going to do something good for somebody, right? I mean, it's just that, but I always, and I know it doesn't work that way, right? That's the thing. Is it, that's, not, that's not how that works, but I do it anyway. Um, and, and yet I always end my prayers with the way Jesus taught us to pray, which is thy will be done, right? That to me is the faithfulness of the partnership, is that uh, no strings attached, right? I do not measure the efficacy based on some perceived outcome. It is because I am supposed to do it. So I pray. And God says, ask, I mean, Jesus says, ask for anything, right? So ask away. What I don't want us to do is measure God's love based on our perceived outcome of the prayer. That's where it gets dangerous. And that's when I say the first highest good of praying is the transformation that happens with us. That's really what I'm getting at, is that it deepens our faithfulness because it is not dependent on whatever we think was the outcome of the prayer. Okay. Lastly with prayer, got a great question during the week um, from one one of our faithful participants. I discussed the structure of prayer, the literary structure of prayer, right? And I wanted to note that prayer is a conversation, right? So conversation is simply, hey, God, uh, I need this thing, right? That's fine. That's a good prayer. Or, you know, hey, God, I'm scared, or anything like that. That's a good prayer. It doesn't have to be beautiful poetry. However, if we want to structure a prayer, there is a way that we structure those words that has been kind of proven good over hundreds and hundreds of years. That's what we talked about last week. However, like with any good relationship, we also listen. And so part of the prayer experience that goes beyond just the literary structure is we speak to God and we listen to God. And so I want to make sure that we acknowledge there is an experience to the prayer or praying 
that includes both what we say and also what we do not say, so that we make space to listen to God. And it got me thinking, so some of you may know that I was, I grew up in music. I went to a school like Booker T, Washington downtown, um, Magnet School for the Arts, and it was a really excellent experience, and I played the oboe. And so I was in symphonies for years and years, played all over the place, and because I was an oboe, an oboist, I tuned the orchestra, right? So if you've ever been to a symphony, you hear that oboe hit that A, and everyone else tunes. That, it, that makes sense as a metaphor for the practice of prayer to me, is that God's got a, God's got a sound or a language or a, or a uh, what might be the right word, a frequency that we tune ourselves to hear best over time, right? And every time we pray, we are practicing getting ourselves in tune to hear what God is saying to us. And so it's that habit and that discipline that helps us tune ourselves over time, right? Few people, if any, can walk up and have perfect pitch. I mean, some do. But most can learn good pitch over time. And that's, in essence, what we're doing. There are some people who just seem to have that perfect pitch with God, right? And you almost feel them. I don't know if you've ever—I'll never forget when I was in grad school the first time. I was in a room and talking with someone, and I was kind of facing one wall, and all of a sudden, like, I felt something, and I turned around, and Desmond Tutu had walked in the room, right? I mean, which is—I hadn't seen him. I did not know he was coming. Um, He just happened to come into the lecture hall. I felt him, right? I mean, very much. And that, to me, is the exceptional— person, right? For the rest of us, we work at it, right? And we tune ourselves over time, and praying has that real functional benefit to us that we become more and more in tune to God's frequency over time, and that we actually get better at hearing God over time, right? It is a habit and a practice and an exercise, and so it is good, and we should do it. The end of praying. Okay, now, thank you. I feel much better after that. Um, okay, chapter 12. So I do want to mention again, there are communication cards in your pews. Great way to submit questions. Um, you can leave them on the tables on your way out. If there's a question you just don't want to ask or we don't have time for, do write them down and leave them for me because sometimes I have to do a little research to get back with you. Um, but I do like that it informs our conversation. Chapter 12 begins with warnings. This is connected to the end of chapter 11. We left off last week talking about the Pharisees, right? We had a moment where we discussed that Pharisees, they are a group of Jews, and that group of Jews had really done faithful work on the law, right? It was very well intended to build parameters around the law, like a bowling alley with bumpers, right? They wanted to give us the bumpers so that our balls get to the end of the lane, right? And so Pharisees had built this extravagant, thorough, faithful set of laws, and Jesus walked in and says, that's not 
the only thing that God wants from us. Laws are okay as they kind of bump us toward the right end. But if we put our faith only in the law, we've really missed all the good stuff. And so Jesus continues with that same thread in the beginning of chapter 12. And what I wanted to read was a section from the message, which I think kind of gets at what he says about birds, right? About sparrows. A quick word, or maybe a question. Did we talk about the difference between translations and paraphrases and all that stuff at the very beginning? So, good, I'm glad. So, listen back to that first session if you want, but just as a recap, translations try to take the original language and make it as accurate as possible. Sometimes when that happens, they are accurate, but they are clunky or disjointed. So, paraphrases are intelligent, thoughtful ways of taking language that could be a little clunky and helping it make sense. My suggestion to us as we study the Bible is that we use both. Translations are the best, but we often need a paraphrase to understand what the translation is even saying, right? So I will sometimes use both, and I did the same thing in preparation for this, because we get that sparrow talk here at the beginning of chapter 12, and it's a little dense or disjointed. So I pulled out the message, which is a great paraphrase, and this is what the message says at the beginning of chapter 12. What's the price of two or three pet canaries? Isn't that funny? Um, anyone ever had a pet canary? What's a canary? Seriously, B? You had a canary? Okay. Um, I mean, that's so nice. That's so nice. So, what's the price of two or three pet canaries? Some loose change, right? But God never overlooks a single one. And he pays even greater attention to you, down to the last detail, even numbering the hairs on your head. So don't be intimidated by all this bully talk. You're worth more than a million canaries. What is happening here at the beginning of chapter 12 is that Jesus is naming the techniques that the Pharisees are using to undermine his message. So I'll put that into context. Jesus is becoming more and more popular. And as Jesus becomes more and more popular, he begins to threaten those in power. And as with everything in human history, those who have power make it their priority to keep power. And so it does not matter why they got power in the first place. Once someone's got it in their mouth, they want to keep it forever. And so even the most well-intended people, once they have that power, will do anything to keep it. So the Pharisees are kind of in a gossiping or slanderous campaign against Jesus. And what he's saying is, they're bullies. Don't listen to them. Bullies only want their way, not what is true. What I am teaching you is truth, God's truth. And don't let their meanness or intimidation tactics sway you from staying on the path that we are on together. So the warning of hypocrisy of faith 
is what undergirds this whole section. Why I say that is the big picture of chapter 12 is that the people of faith have responsibilities. We are not without responsibility to God's kingdom. And that thread starts right here. When you are a person of faith, you are given the responsibility to spread that truth, that story. If you don't, you're not living up to your end of the bargain or of the deal. But when you do, you are in more danger than before you were a person of faith. When I was discerning a call to the priesthood, I had a mentor within, I was a resident, I was an intern chaplain at a hospital in Atlanta, and my supervisor was a Methodist pastor, and she was fantastic. And when I talked to her about potentially going into the priesthood, she said, be careful, because when you go into the clergy is the fastest way to lose your soul. And I remember thinking, what? I mean, don't you like get extra credit? You know, um, I was thinking that I was doing all the extra credit at the back of the test, you know, if I did this. And as I turned that around in my mind, I realized when you take on the responsibility of faith and spread that to others, oh, that's when you can get in big trouble. It is one thing for you as an individual to turn your back to God. If you contribute to others' loss of faith, that is much worse. And how many times have we either been in situations in church, or we know of people who have been in situations with church, where they are so hurt that they just walk away? That's hard stuff. And it is easy for us to be self-righteous if you're on the, the hurting side. But for those who are hurt, if they are, if they are not healed in some way, then the person who caused that hurt is most culpable. It's not that we should do everything in our power to not speak a truth that could be hurtful. But if you do that, then you are responsible for the healing too. And so when you put on the role of discipling others, the risk goes much higher. Now, the reward may go higher too, but you've got a, both sides go up. So your risk reward is, is just a greater degree than it was before. All right, we're going to continue this idea with the parable of the rich fool. Any thoughts or questions before we move on? We have seen before with Luke that there are parables shoved in to help illuminate a deeper idea. We get that sort of structure in chapter 12. We start with these warnings— that really does continue the thread from the Pharisees, and we end with this idea of watchfulness and preparation. And put right in the middle is a parable. 
So it's teaching, parable, teaching. This parable of the rich fool is something that we can understand immediately, right? Our whole culture is based on success. We are challenged at the earliest age to be successful, aspire to success, to achieve success, prepare ourselves to seize opportunities. And when we miss those opportunities, we kick ourselves. Success creates a high level of anxiety, right? The more you get, the more anxious you are that you might lose it. And it's this vicious cycle that, especially in communities like ours, can be debilitating and evil. This rich fool story is something we all know too well, right? It is so simple. This man had the opportunity to make a lot more crops, right? He's just a farmer, and his stuff was growing. And he said, I can't even store all of the stuff that the earth is giving me. And so what does he do? He tears down the old barn and builds a new one, bigger, better, to store all the stuff that he's getting. That is so shrewd and smart, right? How many of us would read that and think, that was dumb. None of us, right? We all say, oh my gosh, if we've got, if we are so blessed, then what do we do if not prepare better to keep all these blessings, right? Thank you, God, for all of these blessings. And yet Jesus says very plainly, I mean, does not mince words. This guy wasted his time. That's his, Jesus' whole point. He spent all this time trying to keep the stuff he did not need, and then he died. I don't know if you missed, if you missed that in the story. That, that's really what he said, right? He was called up. So that's what he, he means. Basically, this guy saw an opportunity. He was ready, right? Prepared to seize the opportunity to be more successful than he ever thought he could be. And so he busied himself doing more and more and more in order to seize the opportunity to be so much more successful than he ever thought he could be, and then he died. What was he doing with his life? But gathering far more than he ever could need in one lifetime. And at the end, when life was over, was it purposeful to anyone? No. This is hard because it is, talk about countercultural, right? There are certain things that Jesus can push us on, and we are like, Jesus, you know. This, this hits us deep because this is part of our identity as Americans, right? It goes very much in the face of what it is that we hold up as good. So let's unpack what Jesus means. When Jesus gets to the end of this parable and he says, one of my favorite lines, you hear me say it, you probably hear me say it every fall, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is getting at is what for me makes great sense. It is human nature for us to 
value what we buy, right? I love driving an old car because I do not care about my car, right? I've never been a car person. I do not care. And I do not care if my car is washed. It's not. I do not care if it's messy. It is. I don't care. However, if you buy a new car, then what do you do? You do, like, make sure it's washed, right? Because you bought the stupid car. And you make sure it's cleaned because you, you bought a stupid car, right? I mean, it's about what we put our money into. Where we put our money, where we put our treasure, where we invest what is valuable to us becomes more important to us over time, right? The more we put into our house, the more we care about our house, the more time we spend on our house, and the more likely we are to be called up. And Jesus says, why do you spend so much time on your house, right? There was someone down the street who was lonely or sick or afraid. And what were you doing? Buying new plants? Repainting the dining room a fifth time? I mean, did that matter at all? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is what I ground my whole philosophy of stewardship in, right? I said this past year that the church does not need your money as much as you need to give. Giving makes this place more important to you. That is really what Jesus is saying here. Money matters to us more than it should, and in order to check how much money matters to us, we should give it away. And where we give it away is very important, because wherever we give it away, that thing will become more and more important to us over time. What do you want to be most important to you? If it's an institution, what kind of institution? What kind of work does that group do? Are you pleased with where you give the most? There's a double-edged sword here, right? I know if people here give more money, they will care more about what goes on here. That's good for discipleship because I want more people to care. Now, that can be a pain in my butt because then people care to tell me all the time what they think about stuff. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's worth it because I want your level of care to go up. That's what Jesus is really getting at here. He's not, what I want you to hear him, I want you to hear me say he is not saying that wealth is bad. He is not saying that we should give everything away and live in communes, right? In fact, Luke later in Acts lifts up a Christian community that where people live in their own homes and they have their own stuff and they do work together, right? This can be interpreted as anti-wealth. What this is, is Jesus saying, don't let your wealth control you. 
Don't let it be most important to you. When you have nothing, it's not a problem, right? When you have nothing, the gospel makes great sense. It's when you have stuff and when you have more and a lot of stuff that the gospel is harder and harder and harder to live. Don't let the stuff, the treasures of this world, keep you from being directed and defined by the gospel of Jesus. That is really what he is saying. And the best of this is using your wealth as a tool in order to help those in greatest need, to spread and extend the kingdom to those who need that touch. That's the tool. That's the usefulness of it. And we do that when we commit to each other together. Okay. Heaven is an important idea in Luke's gospel. Heaven is God's truth. It is the sphere of God's reality. But heaven is not somewhere else. Jesus just taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. And we say in that prayer, heaven, the work of heaven, we hope will be done on earth. Heaven is actually the door that Jesus opens up to us and can be how we are defined here and now. That is really where our treasure should be stored. Jesus is not talking about some place in the future alone. Jesus is talking about realizing God's truth and reality right here, right now, and using our treasures to help bring about God's kingdom, that kingdom of heaven on earth right now. And we do so by prioritizing others, not making ourselves the number one thing in our lives. Questions or thoughts on that before we close it out? We end chapter 12 by talking about preparedness, watchfulness, understanding the world around us. And Jesus uses a parable-ish, a story of slaves whose master is out away and what they do, right? This same kind of story is told over and over and over again in many different ways, right? If you think this kind of sounds like maybe the bridesmaids with the lamps or slaves with the money or the coins or the talents or the yes, the answer is yes. This same kind of idea is played over and over and over again. And in this specific story, what Jesus is saying is that slaves never know when their master is going to return. This harkens back to an idea within Judaism that whenever you hear a story about masters and slaves, what you're really hearing a story about is God and Israel, right? That's the imagery that this should provide to us. And it specifically harkens back to being ready when God calls 
all right? So we've been talking about how God calls and directs and guides in many different ways, and being ready to hear an answer is very important. Back in Exodus, Exodus 12, the people gather together for the Passover meal before they leave Egypt. And what have they done before they sit down to eat? They have gotten dressed and packed to leave. God says, before you even eat dinner, be ready to go at a moment's notice. That first Passover meal, right, why do we have unleavened bread? They had no time for the yeast to rise. They were ready to go. And after the angel passed over, they hopped up and left. That's the kind of preparedness that Jesus is talking about in this example with the slaves. And that is meant really for us. And this is paired with the end of chapter 12, which is interpreting the times. Right? Jesus holds up this idea of preparation right next to the idea of understanding what's going on in the world around you. Now, in historic context, Jesus is at a place in time where the world, their world, is like a powder keg, just ready to explode. There are many, many scholarly pieces that have been written about Jesus's coming at this particular place, at this particular time in human history, because there was the capacity for the story, for the gospel to be spread very fast and very effectively at this one moment. That had it happened 200 years later or 300 years earlier or something like that, the, the potential for spread was much lower. The world as they knew it was really on the brink. Rome was getting uglier and uglier. There were groups all over the place who were beginning to form rebellion and we know, of course, that just less than 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jerusalem is destroyed, sacked, the temple leveled. That is how close they were to a cataclysmic sort of moment. Jesus' words here about interpreting the times are not unlike now. I think it's very important that we do not lull ourselves into thinking that all's good with the world. I don't know how you possibly could. Um, <laughs> but just in case you were somehow very convinced that everything was as good as it possibly could be, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it could be better. Because of that, we are called into an interpretation of this moment in time so that we can respond well. Chap the end of chapter 12 ends, the end of chapter 12 ends, great, it's very good. Chapter 12 ends with this idea that every generation has to reinterpret their moment in history. Now we get this perhaps better than most because we still have in our collective memory World War II. It's a great example of a moment in time where we could have said, 
you know what? God's in control, right? And whatever happens is, is meant to happen, right? Remember that predetermined idea of a plan? But instead, enough people figured out that God was with them with purpose and that what was happening in the world should not have been. We could be better than that. And they were, a, they were committed to putting down all the stuff that was important, right? We think of our friends, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. That moment in time called them into something extraordinary. And they gave up a lot, a lot. They lost a lot because they realized what was the highest good. I don't know that that has really happened since. And I think that for every generation, there is a moment that may not be quite that dire, but there is a moment at which we have to confidently claim a higher good. That does mean that we lose something. And it might mean that we lose good things, but we commit ourselves to a higher good. And I do think, without trying to be so dramatic, that we are leaning closer and closer to a loss of control about what really is our best purpose. And I think that in a church like St. Michael, we have the opportunity to actually begin to lead others toward a higher good purpose. It's not easy because you can't just add on and add on and add on. There has to be a sloughing away of stuff that is in its own right good, but not the highest good. And that's a challenge, because until things get, perhaps, until we perceive that things are a certain kind of bad, we don't like to act proactively, right? And look at our medical, our medical community, right? Our entire medical industrial complex is built on the idea that we don't prevent stuff. We treat it once it's bad. And until it's bad, don't worry. It would be so much better if we invested more in prevention. But it's not human nature, right? We all know that. There is not a person, well, there's gotta be somebody, but most people would not say that prevention isn't worth it. How many studies have, ha have been shown that if we lost weight and controlled our blood sugar and we did all these other things, we would spend a, a huge amounts, exponentially less, on healthcare in general? We're not doing any of that. And that's just because we're human. And so I think what Jesus is really challenging us to do in this chapter, through these stories, is to potentially own the opportunity we have to proactively work for the good of the kingdom of heaven now. Not to wait for things to get so bad that we almost have no choice. That it's not about survival. It should be about thriving. And we can, as long as we put some stuff down, make sure that we shore up treasures in heaven right? The prioritization of our lives is not earthly, worldly, but it is kingdom principled. Then we can actually 
bring about heaven on earth. So what she's saying is that it's, it really is remarkable, and we've had far too many examples of this recently, where when really big bad things happen, our, our common human response may not be universal, but it's most, is to jump to help, right? Did you all read, there was a, I might try and find this article and email it to the group. Um, there was an article written right after Harvey of people who used radio apps from all over the country to dispatch the, what was it called? The people from New Orleans. The the Louisiana Navy, that's right. The Cajun Navy, Cajun Navy, that's what it was, right? The Cajun Navy, these people who just had boats, right? And would go and get people off roofs and out of attics and things like this. The problem was the law enforcement did not have the capacity to arrange all of these hundreds and thousands of rescues happening simultaneously. But there were people around the country using smartphone apps to actually receive these distress calls and connect with random nice person with a boat to go and get them off their roof. Incredible, these stories are incredible. People you know, in Minnesota who stayed up all night long dispatching, sorry, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm such a softy. Okay, sorry, I hear things like this and it catches me because you've got these people, that's what they, that's what we do, right? That's the best of us is when we realize we can help. And I think that it's unfortunate that it has to be that bad before we set our priority right. But it's good to know we have the priorities right when it counts the most. I just wish we could expand it a bit and say that even... Well, maybe I'll leave you with this since we just have one minute. Think of all the people that you will meet today who need a good word or a little love or a little attention because they are lonely or they are scared or they are sad. There are people who you will meet and might be able to completely ignore and you could change something in a significant way if you had the openness to see them problem is we are all busy and we have important things that we have to do and whether those important things are actually important or not we think they are and it's that busyness that keeps us from owning what is really, I think, our sacred responsibility, which is shining light in the darkest places. If, I mean, look in this room. We have about 100 or so people in here. If we all once, once today stopped and looked around us and offered some love to someone we don't know for no reason, with no expectation of repayment of any kind, there would be another hundred people today who might just see the face of Christ for the first time in a long time. That's just once. It would take a minute or two. 
And it's incredible just how powerful we can be when we actually realize that we have Christ's authority in us. And so go and love somebody today, and you'll change someone's life. That's a good way to end. Thank you all. I'll see you next week.